Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. So this season of Be The Change is focusing on why we don't implement the solutions we have for all of our problems. And we have solutions. The main roadblock in the road, well, is us humans. I've been working with my guest today for the past year on removing my own personal roadblocks. And today I am thrilled she will be joining us to discuss the collective roadblock and why we don't do the right thing time and time again. Maggie Saunders is a woman's coach and certified hypnotherapist. She specializes in helping women uncover why they hide who they are, consciously or unconsciously. And today she is going to help us understand why humans are so slow to make the important changes to save ourselves and the planet and how we can change that. So not too big of a request, right? (laughs) So everyone, welcome Maggie to Be The Change. Hi, Maggie. Hi, I'm so happy to be here and so excited to talk about this topic and just to get to spend some time with you and also hear all of your wisdom. So thank you for having me and welcoming me into your community. Are you kidding me? I'm the one who's thrilled. Just so everyone listening, so you know, Maggie and I have been working together for the past year on my own roadblocks and discussing selling my company. And as things would have it, of course, it it goes back down like this rabbit hole of what is really holding me back. And I have learned so much about myself working with you, Maggie, and I'm grateful for it. And what I'm really excited too is that I feel like you hold a lot of the answers to the questions I've been asking. It's like, why humans can't change? Like, you know, why can't we do the right thing? Like, what, what? it's mm-hmm. simple. Stop fossil fuels. So we have other solutions. Why can't we do it, Maggie? Like, mm-hmm. what's wrong mm-hmm. with us? Well, I think for most people, it's not for lack of care. I think most people, what I found in my work, which has been such an amazing portal into getting to see humans from a different perspective with their vulnerabilities at the forefront with them being really honest about the intricacies of human life, which I think it's a lot more intricate than we think even sometimes. But people care. They really care. They do. They want good things for the world, for their family, for themselves. They want to create solutions to problems that they know about. And at the same time, there's this very big difference between who we believe we are and then how we actually act. And for some people, they're very aware of those differences, but for other people, they're not aware of them at all. They don't really see that they may identify themselves as someone who is always going to recycle and would never litter and would never do these things and would never harm the environment, would never. And they really identify themselves as that. But the way they act from a subconscious and unconscious perspective doesn't actually align. So they don't even know that they're not in line with the identity that they want. So So I think that's a really big part of it. Yeah. So that's interesting that you say that. So some people can really, you know, almost be martyrs about it. But like, I mean, there's there's people, you know, I recycle, I do this. It's like, you know, I compost, I compost my dog's poop. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. really like into it. And then, yeah, that's the same person who maybe has five cars. And they say, like, I can't get around not having five cars because I need one for each family member because everyone has a job Mm -hmm. and every, you know, there's excuses. Yep. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. I'll take myself, for example. So I'm somebody who cares a lot about our world, our, our literal earth, our planet. 
and what is happening to it, what is going to happen to it, what future children are going to have to deal with. And at the same time, when I'm at a grocery store and I need a cucumber and the only cucumber is the one that has the plastic wrapping on it, I have been known to buy said cucumber. (laughs) Whereas I could go, I don't, do I need a cucumber? No, I could use another vegetable or change the recipe or whatever it is. But it's those little moments that I personally do my best to bring more attention to. Like in that moment going, wait, I can change this recipe. I don't need this one. I don't need the plastic thing. Or of the things that I recycle, how many things are actually getting recycled? Like learn about those little things. But I think in our society, especially in the US, it's so focused on all or nothing, this or that. Are you the most eco-conscious? Are you completely doing nothing? And what happens in that is that people don't get much reward for the little things they do. And I don't mean reward like from the government or from society at large, but just from almost themselves. And they have the sensation that they're like falling behind already. They're already not doing enough. And anytime human beings feel like they're not enough, they're falling behind. What I've seen most of the time is that just makes them do it more because they're like, I'm already not doing enough. So who cares? The little bit that I recycle isn't good enough. I don't ride my bicycle. So I've already lost. And it becomes personal without them realizing it. That's so much more about it is about how they're feeling, how they're performing, and it loses the original core, which is, well, what's good for the planet at large? Am I explaining that in a way that that makes sense? Yeah, no, 100%. And I think there's so much there. I want to get back to that, like how someone can change that of being, you know, feeling defeated so early on and just giving up. But I want to talk about the cucumber with plastic. So (laughs) we've discussed this a little bit. Now, for me, I mean, of course, I mean, geez, if that's the worst, then my goodness, like you're an eco-saint, right? I feel like, you know, I have stuff with plastic on it all the time. And I actually, that's one of the things I don't think about, which is funny. I mean, I think about it, but I don't feel guilt about it because Mm -hmm. it's just there. And also because I attribute that to the people who are selling it to us. So Mm -hmm. I think one of the big schemes of corporations is to bring the guilt to us, the general population, and have us feel the shame for what they're actually creating. So we feel ashamed of what we're buying from them Mm -hmm. instead of them actually fixing it. And I want to humanize the corporations because the corporations are run by people. They're run by Mm -hmm. humans. And oftentimes we see them as these big entities. So they're able to know what they're doing, Maggie. Mm -hmm. Like they know how, you know, this plastic isn't necessary and that there's other ways we can do it. So what do you think makes a CEO like not change? You know, they know they've been saying like oil, for instance, right? And then also for what it's worth, it's not a black and white issue. It's a very middle ground gray issue. Like there's no way we can just cut off oil and just immediately Mm -hmm. go to solar. It's just not going to happen. And by the way, solar isn't great either. You know, it takes minerals from people who are basically enslaved to dig them and paid pennies so we can have it in our phone. Mm-hmm. But knowing this as a CEO, as someone who makes products, right? I think about all the time, like I try to improve it. What do you think they're telling themselves? Like, mm-hmm. do you know? <laughs> so I don't know for sure what they're telling themselves. But the first thing I think of is that especially in the US, the way society is built, it's a very like top down. So people who have more money or more power, more leadership are at the top, and then others kind of move down from there. The structure, the way we view them. My immediate thought though is CEOs of these massive companies, oil and gas, tech, politicians, they are just, like you said, human beings. They are human beings who um, may be very intelligent or very connected or very driven to reach a certain level of power and status. And they have, they have reached that and there's different things they've done. And at the same time, for me, I have to be mindful that it's easy for me to look at them and go, but you're, you're at the top of the top. Like you control so much. You control so many people's jobs. You control the environment. You control politics and policies and all of these things, how could you not be more mindful? But what I've learned is that they're still just people. 
they just are people with that particular type of power. So whatever is personally going on for them at deep levels in their subconscious, whatever they learned when they were little kids is going to play out, but it's going to play out on this much bigger playing field than the average person who it may be playing out in just their personal relationship or their family or amongst their friends or their, you know, small family owned business. And there it's easier to see, oh, He's always very overbearing because when he was a child, everybody told him what to do. And so now he's kind of a boss who looks over everyone's shoulder. Okay, take that same imaginary person and put them in control of the oil and gas industry, put them in a political field. The same reason that they're talking over people in meetings or ignoring the uh, warnings that they're getting from environmentalists. Maybe it's because when they were little, nobody would listen to them and they didn't have any power. And this is now their power. So to answer your question in a way, I think what happens for them is even though on a logical sense, we could say, but the decisions you're making are destroying this part of the world or are going to lead to these horrible things or there's these projections. And I believe that they know and feel that, but it gets overridden deep down by a deeper desire that is being met, which may be to be in control, to think that they've got it all under control, to not intentionally, but almost not care, like care more about what they need to do, which may be to make investors happy, keep lobbyists in their pool. And I'm not saying these are like good things or we should like say, oh, well, I guess that's just what they learned. But, or rather, and they are in fact human beings who are making decisions in ways they may not even know why. They may not know why they just can't care that the industry they're in is harming people when it makes the millions of dollars. And usually I don't think it's malicious and like evil, but it can seem that way. So this all reminds me of an interview that I heard with a man, his name's, I just looked it up, his name's uh, Walter Isaacson, and he was CEO of a, publishing company went over to CNN and now he writes books. And he just recently wrote a book about spending several years on a daily basis with Elon Musk. And Mm. it's a fascinating interview. It's on Diary of a CEO with Steve Bartlett. So if anyone wants to listen to it, but one thing that I was left with that he said is that because people, we think that when people reach these heights or these places of power, that they are better, maybe more enlightened, that they know more. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. And that really struck me. I was like, that that's a hundred percent true. That generally that they have had some serious, serious trauma in their life of which gave them that drive Mm -hmm. to look the other way, to actually, to get that powerful or to make that much money or to take that many resources from the planet Mm -hmm. is going to take a lot of sadness and maybe revenge, whatever it may be in their hearts to do that, to look the other way and that they know is, so do you, would you agree with that? Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that that, that rings very true is that especially the piece that there's this idea that once people reach certain status, that they are in fact better. Better could mean smarter, more logical, more like deserving of power, whatever it is, because they've made it. So they yeah. they like won the game. So they yeah. they should be seen as the top when that's not necessarily true. They have won that game, but those rules don't necessarily mean that they're like the most elite of humans, whatever it is. And then if you, it always helps me to look at different cultures. When I was at university, I was an anthropology major. And so, uh, so much of the education I got was around looking at different cultures, not judging any of them, but observing their differences. And so to me, I look at other cultures and see how in certain cultures, the things that in the U.S. or in Europe that we really idolize, other cultures don't care at all. It doesn't matter at all. They don't even have a concept or a way of looking at it. And it's not to say we're wrong and they're right or vice versa, but that there's these structures and these ways of thinking that we adopt subconsciously and don't even realize 
We don't even realize that we are seeing certain people as better and certain people as worse. And we start thinking it's just factual that just if you're the president of the United States, it's just factual that you're the smartest and most capable when most of us have learned that that is not the fact. You are good at some stuff for sure. Very good. And that could be getting investment. That could be rallying a crowd. That could be looking at positions in unique ways that bring you to the forefront. But it does definitely doesn't mean you're necessarily the best human in the United States. So I absolutely agree that any of those people have the exact same amount of human trauma and experience as any other person. They've just used it to funnel themselves in a different direction. And many of them have gotten a boost from the place in society they came from. So what their parents were doing, you know, their race, their gender, their sexuality, things like that, that also, I mean, is a whole other web that plays into everything. That's right. That's Mm -hmm. right. Yes. Uh, Nepotism and all of that. But yeah, what's interesting is that someone I've been saying for a while now and I'll, you know, I'll pick on Elon Musk, but that he's been seen as this hero. And what is it? You know, I'm reading, um, what's it called? Stolen Focus. It's a Johan. I, I don't know his last name. Forgive me. But he wrote a book about how our phones and our attention spans are, is just so little and that no one, it shocks me time and time again that, you know, like on my website, if if you, not my website, but if you follow me on Instagram, I'm often posting things and people will send me things because they know I'm going to do the research. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go. And if you send me something and it says that, you know, this will cause breast cancer or this will cause that, you know, if you send it to me that I'm going to go and research it before I repost and make sure that it is comes from a legitimate source. But so few people are willing to do that. And then so we also love to then prop up someone like Elon Musk, who also this interview, which I know I'll send it to you because I know you'll find it fascinating, mm-hmm. Maggie. It goes into his childhood, how his father treated him. His father was extremely abusive. Elon ended up in a hospital at a young age for bullying. He came out. His father then, instead of feeling bad for his son for being beat up, all right, you know, Mm. most of us, you know, he said, you know, called him pathetic, all of this. So you can imagine that this was the drive, but yet none of us on the outside, you know, it's like, oh, well, he makes a really cool car. So therefore he's going to save the world. Mm. Why? Why do humans do this? What is Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Why do we like idolize certain people and kind of want to like follow them? Without even knowing, without even taking the time to like Mm -hmm. study who they are, you know? Well, this is kind of a funny answer that first came to mind, but one is really good branding. One is really good branding. People get a good brand. They get a good team around them through money and influence or whatever it is. And they brand them as the answer. They show all the great parts of them, which I'm not saying aren't true, but they highlight those just like Coca-Cola highlights all the cool parts of Coca-Cola. They're not going to talk about any of the other stuff or any, you know, organization or big personal brand. They're going to say the good stuff, not the stuff that's, you know, not as great. So I think that's one thing. Also, I think one of the most painful feelings for human beings I have found, especially for myself, is a sensation that you can't do anything about it. Mm. Like, too bad. You can't do anything about it. When a tragedy happens or something that is sad personally, and it's just, you know, you can't change it. I can't go and undo all that stuff and fix it for that one individual person or for that whole town or community, whatever it is. And so when there's someone that gets well-branded and does put out, you know, things that are cool and are revolutionary or are interesting or helpful in some degree, then it can feel a lot better to at least have someone to back that you're like, they're doing it. They're going to figure it out. And so that gives me a little bit of peace that like, I'm not going to be able to figure out how to do it, but this person is. So I'm going to put my, you know, what I can do behind them, maybe by donation or words of praise or buying their products or services. But kind of this idea that like, I'm part of something if I'm part of helping them and they're going to make it happen. And I mean, it's similarly what we do with politicians. Like 
I can't change, you know, the taxes of the United States independently, but maybe I can vote for someone who will represent me. So I think that's one thing. And also it's tempting to not research people because you are somebody who does a really great job of doing the research, like you said, of really figuring out what's the core of this. And I feel like that's a very deep value of yours. But that also shows a side of strength in you, which is a willingness to see the underbelly of things. And some people don't have that. They don't feel the capacity. It feels scary to see what the truth is. You know, he's not going to save the planet. Is that company actually faulty? Is that politician not out for what I want, even if they say that, whatever it is? That, I think we really underestimate how scary it is to think that like your superhero, quote unquote, is just a regular guy. It can be really frightening at a level people don't think about consciously. But it happens, I see a lot in entertainment or sports when somebody will get called out for something they've done, especially someone you would not expect. And then it kind of breaks your heart and you're like, but everything I thought isn't true and you're not who I expected. And, And that's just for kind of entertainment purposes, but on bigger scales, it's even harder, I think. So some people, I think, stay just numb to it because they want to believe they want to believe that some guy let's say elon musk is going to save the planet or greta or whomever like that they've got this magic something that's going to fix it because it's yeah i think that because they're so overwhelmed by the fact Mm -hmm. that they can't and i think you know i'd love to get into this in discussing how we're all, you know, you crack me up that you you say you love to watch TV, like you watch the news or big figures speaking, and all you can see are them as children. Mm-hmm. And that basically we are, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we're caught in our place of where our first big trauma had, and we're constantly in our adult lives trying to fix that trauma that happened to us in our childhood without subconsciously, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Without even knowing it. Tell me if I have more about that. Yeah, it, it is a funny thing I do whenever I'm watching, and I rarely watch the news because it tends to bring me very little information and a lot of stress. But when I do, or when I read um, or hear about things, I can't help but see them all as children. You know, so I'm often hearing about things and in my head, I'm just seeing a room of 10 little boys. And I don't mean that in a degrading way. I mean that in a genuine way that exactly any unprocessed trauma or the foundational beliefs we developed as children, which could be, you know, men are mean, they yell at you, women ignore you that could come from mom and dad or being vulnerable is dangerous or uh, being too loud is annoying. Any of these things. And everyone's got some, nobody got out without them, no matter how wonderful your parents are. And it's not necessarily parents' fault. Most are not trying to instill some kind of mixed up belief, but it, it just happens. And if people have not addressed that in their own work and their own self actualization, their own therapy, whatever it is, you know, hiking the PCT, like, that is going to play out in whatever adult uh, playing field you're in. So if it's politics, if it's running a company, if it's being a stay-at-home parent, if it's whatever, because subconsciously the foundation of the world, what the world is, keeps playing out. And so let's say when I, I watch like a political debate, all I can think about is, the one that keeps interrupting everyone. Why do you feel that you have to interrupt to be heard? Who shut you down as a little kid? Who told you you weren't valuable? Why do you need to raise your voice to feel in charge? Who made you quiet? Who scared you? Or who was loud in your life that you saw as the ultimate authority and you're trying to be that? Or the one that's kind of attacks the politician that attacks, what are you so scared of? Why do you have to keep them in the other people down so you can be up? Who made you feel that you can't be equal and be safe? 
That's what I'm thinking the whole time. And the scary part to me is that those childhood experiences, if not noticed and supported and cared for, can literally change the outcomes of countries and state policies and war and healthcare and let alone the day-to-day, you know, just how people treat each other, the way kids are taught in school or all these things that it can get a little scary when you're like, is a seven-year-old running the house? Right. You know, like is that literally the house. (laughs) Yeah. I see that. And you know, when we met and I started doing the work, it's it's a full-time job. Like mm-hmm. you really consciously have to stop yourself, which I do now. And it's funny because I live, you know, in my house with my husband and my son, it's very open discussion, but oftentimes it's like, I call it diarrhea of emotions. Like there's mm-hmm. no control. Like it's just, you know, spewing out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not to give anyone that image, but I didn't grow up that way. I grew up in a household with a single mom where nothing was really discussed. Emotions mm-hmm. weren't even dealt with, mm-hmm. Do you know, like it was very emotionless. Mm-hmm. And so now I often stop myself. So in an argument or now I see myself like I'll I'll get short or something and then I stop and then I can apologize and I say, you know, well, one, it's that, you know, maybe I'm completely exhausted and I've done too much and, and that's that, right? But then there's other things when it happens to me, like something that triggers me. And if I'm triggered, then I also have to say, instead of immediately coming, you know, like you said, like attacking and coming back with that, I stop and I think, what trauma is this bringing up? Where did this happen before? But that's not like, I mean, these are people, heads of state, like standing, mm-hmm. you know, and I can't imagine like <laughs> mm-hmm. that anyone's thinking about that. So it really does form the person. And, and, you know, and oftentimes we are, we're like, you know, toddlers running around with scissors. Yeah. Hoping that we don't stab someone else or they, you know, or trip and stab ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And, but it's also, I don't want to say disheartening, but it is in the sense that I don't know how many people are doing the work. And then when it comes to something like climate, we really want change. We mm-hmm. really, really want change. Mm-hmm. But when it comes time to change, wait, hold on. Like, I don't know if I can do that. I think I see it just in local politics here, how people just like, they just, you know, wait a minute, hold on. I don't know if we can change that composting. I don't know. That's too big. That's going to bring rats or that's going to be this. And like, people Mm. just go off. And one of the things that it was so shocking, Maggie, this summer, there's a council member, I think it was in Queens. And they were trying to get rid of, you know, the ice cream trucks Mm -hmm. because they run on diesel, which is the worst. And they park and they leave the motor running and running and emissions is just going into, you know, this is climate change. This is part of the reason things flood and why everything's too hot and all this. And they just wanted to have them switch to electric vans and everyone just lost it. They were just like, no, no, we don't want this to change at all. What is that? Mm. What is that? Like, we'll have a new truck, but yeah. That's such a great example. So the way it breaks down in my head right away is there's the logical side. And first of all, humans are not logical. We act like it. And if you're a listener and you're like, I'm incredibly logical, I would bet you're less logical than you think, myself included. But if we look at it, say, from that perspective, this idea of, well, just change from diesel to electric and then just keep doing your business, do everything else, just don't use diesel, just use electric. And I think if you brought that up to anyone just randomly on the street and was like, would that be reasonable? I think most people would be like, sure. If like costs are going to be, you know, covered and, and there's like a general plan, yeah, it might take a little bit, but sure. But What we're not looking at is the much deeper piece, which is change. And first of all, the brain was not designed to change really quickly. The brain can change really quickly, which is awesome. And we didn't actually know until the 80s 
we used to think that the brain was just what it was once you were older. And that was that. But neuroplasticity was discovered and the brain can change. But deep down, our brain likes to do the things the same way. It's an energy conserving uh, mechanism. It wants to just do the same thing the same way. So think about just basic habits. You probably always put your contacts on before you brush your teeth or you brush your teeth before you brush your hair, whatever it is. And there's no reason you couldn't do it differently, but the brain just says, let's just do it the same way. We'll conserve that energy. We don't have to learn anything new or do anything different. So it's set up to run patterns. So any concept of change at even a simple level can be very frightening or just simply uncomfortable, a thing you don't want to experience. You know you could do it the other way, but you always do it this way. Let's just do it this way. And people can really fight. And if you think of that on a bigger level, like somebody whose livelihood comes from this ice cream truck, that they've always done it this certain way, it's always worked this certain way, and now they're being asked to learn a whole new way where things could go wrong differently. What if people don't hear it, don't like it? What if the nostalgia's gone? What if that cost them their family's income? Or even the people who are enjoying the ice cream trucks, they're like, the nostalgia is gone. It's totally different. It's not what I thought. That feeling of something changing, even if you're like, it's an ice cream truck, who cares, can send us subconsciously into a total like revolt of, I will not, no, 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 I cannot do this. And then if we think of people individually, if they have any kind of change trauma, you know, parents who got divorced and married many times or a family that was unstable or going through a change in their life that felt like it hurt them really badly, any of those things, this whole ice cream truck idea is going to trigger that. And on the conscious level, if you ask them, are you mad about the ice cream truck because your parents moved a lot as a kid? They're probably going to say, no. This has nothing to do with each other. But if you really sat with it and they had the time and the space to not have any shame and to safely inspect it, I would bet you millions of dollars that they are absolutely connected. But it's just, this is the playing field that it's being expressed on. But it could be something as simple as you suggesting that, you know, we're going to change all the toothpaste to some other color. Right. So, I mean, but so the idea that we can't, we're going to have ice cream trucks, same music, they're going to be electric. And it wasn't even the drivers, it was the public. The public Mm -hmm. there was just like, and they wanted the council member fired. And like it was the backlash was intense. So, when I think of that, Maggie, then I think, ah, we're doomed. Like, how are we going to change anything? Mm -hmm. How are we going to change anything? And yet, we do change. We change our clothes. Mm-hmm. We change our hair, right? Many of us, we change what we eat. We change how we exercise. I am someone who myself came from a single mom who moved everywhere. I moved 12 times by the time I was in, I don't know, sixth grade. But yet I just realized, which I thought, and I had so many different homes, but I realized that I do change a lot. And I actually push change. Like I start to get bored and I push change. So we do change, Mm -hmm. right? We do change. Sometimes we'll just change like that. What's the difference between that ice cream truck and me going and, you know, changing my hair from blonde to red? Mm -hmm. Totally. The number one difference that I see right away is one was your choice and one wasn't. Ah. One you had a say in it. So you could dye your hair red or purple or black or whatever. But if I said, you're going to have to dye your hair purple, you have to for this to get, I don't know, a tax refund or something. (laughs) Then It's very likely people will go, "Uh uh-uh, no. As soon as the freedom is removed, Mm. even if the thing itself, the ice cream trucks, they don't care about. But no one asked the public about the ice cream trucks. They didn't get to have their say. Their life is going to change a little bit or maybe for them inside a lot, even though logically we can say that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. It matters what's going on inside is what's propelling their experience of it. So they didn't get to decide. This person's coming in and telling them that this has to change and it's always been like this and that's not fair. And so some people might move to the space of, I love change. I used to always change when I was little. I'm very accustomed to it. It feels familiar. 
And then others may say, I hate change. I had to change all the time when I was little and it made me feel scared and alone and I never had any control. And so I don't think we're doomed. I do think we have to look at things differently. And that's why I'm so grateful to get to speak to people like you and and be on podcasts and share this perspective because the question isn't, can people change? Because like you said, they can. The question is, how do we talk to people and address what's actually going on? What are they actually so scared and frightened by? And the hard part of that is the individuals have to be willing to do that. Because maybe you've had this and maybe somebody who's listening has had this where you want to talk to somebody else about something that you can see is going on in their life. Maybe they're kind of sabotaging themselves or hurting themselves or really getting in their own way, but they're not willing to see it. And it's really a totally useless conversation because they're pushing it away. They're not listening. I'm sure I've been on that the other end of that at some point in life. Yeah. I'm like, no, 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 no. Get this away from me. So what we have to start with is the people who are willing to address that maybe it's not the ice cream truck that you're upset about. Maybe it's the fact that you're being told what to do in your neighborhood by somebody you don't know and you don't trust. And maybe when you were little, that happened or you saw it happen to somebody else and that scared you and hurt you. And I think the way that this is changing already is mental health, the focus on mental health has um, blown up over the past few years, especially since 2020. And the younger generations are extra fixated on it, which I think is wonderful. It's like an actual trend that TikTok and Instagram and Pinterest are observing. This huge trend towards mental health and mental health conversations. And that... What I think about where my hope is, is that I would love for, say, my dad's generation, my dad's about to turn 80, that he had that. It was not the focus Mm. whatsoever. Talking about feelings, talking about deeper issues, going to a therapist, any of that was just very far away from the likelihood of what would happen. But these younger generations, it is there. So I'm thinking... A kid who's 11 now, who grows up talking about what's going on inside of themselves, in their mind, in their thoughts, in their feelings. What about when they become a politician? I think they have a higher likelihood of actually running things from an awareness. Will they be perfect? No. But I have a strong feeling it will be different, Mm. quite different than it is now. And I'm sure every generation will say the same thing as time goes on, because we're always going somewhere new. Hmm. So that's interesting. You brought up age and generations and how things were done when your dad was a certain way. I mean, certain age, a Mm -hmm. certain way, right? And that things were a certain way when he was in his 20s or 30s and mental health wasn't discussed and such. But yeah, I have no doubt that your dad had his wild times you know, and that he went against the system in some way. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's youth or if we want the things that we want, if we should really as a collective look and have much younger people in charge, mm-hmm. right? Instead of, as my son would say, the old heads, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is funny they're just heads on TV that are old. Mm-hmm. And if we had, if we made it a rule that you listen, you have to be, you know, 50 and under, you know, that would take me out and I'd be upset. But, you know, like, do you have to do that? And, but on the other hand, there's a lot to be said about, you know, wisdom that comes with mm-hmm. age mm-hmm. because I certainly did a lot of crazy things when I was younger and started my business, for instance, on $5,000 mm-hmm. in my kitchen and quit my job when my mom was terrified at the age of 24, right? Mm-hmm. And that benefited me in a great way, but I also didn't know a lot of things and I went through a lot of stuff. And I love the idea that we're not doomed, that you think we have hope, but how are we going to choose? Are you thinking that we just need to age out of it and that the next generations will have more thoughtfulness to it and that we're just going to have to wait for the CEO of you know Exxon to retire and then have someone else come in? But I don't know if mm-hmm. they'll be willing to, even if they're 25, because... Mm-hmm. 
they may look at money and power. We haven't brought up money and power yet. And I do want to talk about that because I feel like there's reasons we change. And oftentimes it has to do with a benefit to ourselves and not a benefit to others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely self-preservation for sure. Yeah. And I think what I'm saying is going to be common and have be, have been seen all throughout history, which is the idea that the ones that are up and coming are going to change the world. And I think absolutely yes, because they get all the information of what has already been done. You know, my generation, your generation, my dad's generation, all of them, there was something where they were like, whoa, 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 this is not working. We got to fix that. That's not okay. And so then things revolutionize and they change and et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's going to inevitably keep going on. I do think it's an interesting and very fun debate to have of, you know, should there be an age limit on politics from, you know, the upper age limit as well as a younger age limit? I think that there's a lot of interesting things to say about that, specifically with politicians of the demographics you're representing. If you are a, you know, 62-year-old white man, but the majority of your demographic are Latinas in their 20s to late 40s, you're not a great representative. It just doesn't make any sense. And they might not be a great representative for you if the tables were turned, but that's confusing to me. So that that's a piece where I'm thinking about a lot, like, are they accurately representing their people if they're much older or they've never lived in the way that the majority of the population has? Right. You know, same thing with like, if you're a billionaire, you do not know what it's like for the majority of people, you don't. And it's not necessarily your fault because that's just the state of your life right now. I don't know what it's like for very, very low income people. And I never have. And I know it's very different than my life was. And I think that it's not necessarily that we should only put young people, you know, quote unquote, in charge. But I do think that they have their pulse on what is needed and what is wanted. And I do feel like my generation, the generations younger than me are working very hard to let that be known, even in utilizing social media in a positive sense to be really vocal about different movements or about what's going on at their school or about how much things cost. I think that adds a whole other aspect, the fact that we have social media now and information can be exchanged at mass within seconds like literal seconds. I think that's good and bad. I mean, I think that that one of the things within we've discussed social media and I've limited my time to a half an hour a day now because it's overwhelming. And I feel Mm -hmm. that it's a great platform, as you were saying, for people, those people who felt, you know, when you were talking about the debates and those people Mm -hmm. who felt like they were never heard, well, if they really put their efforts into social media, they can Mm -hmm. create a fan club and then they never hear anyone else's voice. I don't Mm -hmm. see, it's very polarizing. I don't Mm -hmm. see too many people, you know, it's always like, this is is my way or the highway. This is how it is. And everything in health and wellness and politics and all this, there's so many people like that. And it's just a huge turnoff. It draws you in. But then Mm -hmm. for me, it's just like, oh, wait, no, you're not for me. But Maggie, the one thing that I thought was interesting to what I think youth has done a great job of is optimizing. So we have, I have a website now on Shopify that is so simple and so easy to do and it's streamlined. And Mm -hmm. 25 years ago, when we were just creating our own websites, right? I'd spend $30,000, $25,000 for something that looked like you wouldn't even use it as a PowerPoint. It was so bad, right? Uh-huh. And so I look at that and then that, I feel like if we can bring that into our political system and kind of, but it could, I guess, suppose it could also be very dangerous too. And what it comes down to, you tell me if you disagree, but I think it comes down to who we are as people and what we hold as important. And there's a lot of people right now who hold money and power as important Mm -hmm. and not community and sharing and kindness Mm -hmm. and equality. Mm -hmm. How do we change that? Well, when I hear money and power, 
And even in my clients who are really struggling with money or a sense of power or wanting power in their lives, not in a negative way, but that's genuinely something they want. I hear safety. That's the word I hear because that's what it represents in our society. Power and money give you a much easier access to safety. If you have lots of lots of power and you have lots and lots of money, you have an easier time being safe from a literal sense of like housing and security and things like that, but also a sense of you can pay for things to get erased. You can pay for your mistakes to go away. You can pay for someone to do something you don't want to do. I'm sorry, you've just described Mark Zuckerberg who just built a bunker in Hawaii for like, you know, billions of dollars. Keep going, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 I'm, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, it's safety, it's safety. In our society, it is safety because we all know, or I would say many of us know that if you are a person with no money whatsoever or assets or anything and no power, your life is going to be incredibly hard. And people are going to think things about you that may not be true. That is, you know, the reasoning behind why you must be like that, which who knows the reasoning behind why different people are in different states of life. There's certainly some patterns, but not necessarily something that's like any person who's under the poverty line is X, Y, Z. And any rich person is X, Y, Z. That's not necessarily true. There's all these different pieces, but people want to be safe. Number one, the end, nothing else matters as much as safety, nothing in the human brain. Happiness, nope. Beauty, nope, whatever it is. But different words have come to represent safety, like beauty, like ability, like wealth, like power, those things that they equal safety in our minds. So we go very hard for them. We will do whatever we need to do to keep them because ultimately it's safety that we want. So that's the piece where going back to one of your first questions, when I look at the things that CEOs or politicians or board members or investors or people in more everyday life are doing that you would be like, why in the world would you make that decision? It is so obviously a bad decision, a harmful decision, a dangerous decision. What are you talking about? Is my brain goes to, there is something in this that feels safer to them than the other way, than if they didn't do this. And depending on how well these people know themselves and what's really going on will depend on what decision they'll make. So interesting. I think one of the things I want to bring up, it comes to mind is that there's so many people who will talk about those who are impoverished. You hear about it. And if they're so poor, why do they have $200 shoes? Mm -hmm. Why do they have the newest iPhone? Why do they have this or that? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think you nailed it, which is that, that these items represent a power, a status mm -hmm. that when you are wearing them and other people see you will think differently, mm -hmm. right? That you are this or not. I mean, we've all been there. I feel like, you know, we've all had that stage where we wanted to have this certain thing. So it's never really, I was, you know, it's always like, well, why not? I have a painting that my friend made. Everyone wants the same thing. I mm. mean, in general, mm -hmm. and, and that is safety. Yeah. Safety for yeah. themselves and for their family. Because in today's world, it often does feel like a squid game, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm with you on that. Okay. So safety. So if how then do we bring safety to the masses? That is a very complex question, which I love <laughs> all of your questions because all of your questions are like complex and deep and have a lot of like corners and crevices to them. The simplest answer I can think of is how do we bring safety to people? It's that it's one recognizing that that's what we're looking for. And these other things represented, and depending on the culture or society you're a part of, those will change a little bit depending on where you're at and how you live. But as one is that, that's what we're looking for. 
So if anyone, if you can just begin to see through those lenses, and even if you don't change anything and you're just like, oh, that's why I go into debt. Because when I have this stuff, I feel a little safer and it actually improves my quality of life more than the debt degrades my quality of life. Now, sometimes that will switch and eventually people will get in so much debt or in so much something similar that they'll be like, wait, 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 it's changed. It's changed. And they'll have to figure that out. But how do we get that safety is understanding our internal worlds, beginning to understand them. One, that we even want safety. And then two, beginning to notice what actually makes us feel safe and what doesn't make us feel safe and to make the unconscious conscious and start looking at, okay, I want this thing because it makes me feel like people will take me seriously. How can I begin to help myself take myself more seriously, get these needs met outside of this thing? How do I get what I need met as an adult, as an older person, not as a child, because we don't really get a say in it as children? How do I get these things met with different patterns instead of buying things or talking over people or ignoring or staying on social media? What are the real needs and what are real ways that I could get them met? But the complex part of this question is that it's going to need change. And like we talked about, change can feel very scary. So that's why realizing that we need safety is so important because it helps us understand our resistance to change isn't us being like bad or lazy or weird or not adventurous or whatever. It is natural to think, will this change hurt me? Maybe I don't want to do it. Maybe I'll just keep doing what I've been doing, what has worked. So acknowledging that helps us actually change. So when it comes to something like climate, Mm -hmm. do we need the change made for us? Do we need it mandated in order to reach where we need to reach? I think if the world power suddenly mandated a bunch of changes, there would be mass revolution against it or revolting against it, excuse me, because of like the ice cream chucks. I don't want to be told what to do but it's going to help everyone. I don't want to be told what to do. And again, I, I hear it in a childlike voice. I don't want to be told what to do. You can't tell me what to do. No. So I'm not going to do it. Even if you want to do it, even yeah. if that's like what you like and it's helpful, it's that fight against being limited and being seen as small and out of power and no scale. I think the approach, which I have no idea how this would be done. I am not a specialist in this. I have no way. I'm sure there are way many, so many complexities I do not understand. But the things I've seen that really work in society is when individuals get rewarded for helping the community. So that they get individual praise but the community gets mass benefit. When that happens, if we go back to say uh, the school system, when it's like everyone cleaned up after, but this one child helped the other children and he gets noted and said, great job, Timmy. That was so impactful. We're gonna give the whole class an extra lollipop or whatever. He got this special feeling. He had power. He did something. But the whole class benefits because of his actions. In our world, we don't really do that. We do a lot of penalizing. If people do things they're not supposed to do, they get in trouble. I was talking to a friend about this recently with taxes, because if you heard that joke, how it's like, the government won't tell you how much you owe and then you have to pay. But then like two years later, they'll be like, this is exactly how much you owed and now you owe us more. And it's like, why won't you just tell us time, <laughs> and I will just pay that instead of doing it this way. Yeah. But she was talking about what if it was more about instead of the fear of getting audited by the IRS, it was more like the first 10 million to get their taxes and gets an extra $20 off or something way more motivating, way more interesting. It would probably help the collective 
but you would get an an immediate benefit, a praise, a good job. So looking forward at the eco-crisis that we're in, I think mandates will make people fight back. I think some way of enlisting praise and success will make people more motivated. How? I wish I knew the exact answer. I got it. I got it. Free ice cream for all. Free ice cream for all. (laughs) Free ice cream via electric ice cream vehicles. That's right. If we switch to electric ice cream vehicles, the first scoop's on us. You'll Mm -hmm. get it for free, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there are other countries that do a much better job of this, that do a much better job of highlighting the benefit of doing certain things, even if it's uncomfortable or you don't love it or it's not great, like the most fun thing you've ever done, highlighting what it's doing for the rest of society and then giving a benefit. Instead of it being a punishment system or this kind of assumption that like, I see this in a lot of different arguments in US politics, this idea of like, well, US is, we're this like amazing country that has this like religious backing as well. And we're like these very good people. And I'm not saying I agree with all of that. But because of that, American people are just going to do what's right. We just do what's right. And it's really ignoring human behavior that will just, you know, if you're a good person, you'll just recycle. You shouldn't even want any praise around that. Or if you're a good person, you'll do these things or do those things. When I think all people benefit from getting praise and support and being celebrated for what they did well. But the sensation that you're going to get in trouble kind of keeps people in line. But most of the time, it just makes them a little bit sneakier with their behaviors. That's what I've seen, which again, I'm not an expert on it. So So what countries do you know which places specifically that are, do you feel are doing it right or somewhat right? Well, I think one thing I was just thinking about is I believe in Ireland, I want to get fact checked on that, but for say all the plastic, all the plastic bottles and containers and all that stuff, they have these machines that are in grocery stores or gas stations. And if you collect all this plastic waste, it has to be cleaned and it has to have like all the parts. So the bottle, the little thing on the top that holds the, the cap and then the cap, you put them into these machines and they kind of remind me of those coin-based machines, you know, where you could put all your change in and then it tells you how much you have. You do that, but with plastic bottles, it can tell what kind of bottles or cans or whatever it is. And then you get paid out in it. You get paid however much they collect for those things, but you also see what benefit it has had on society. Like you've turned in a thousand bottles, you have made $50, whatever it is. But also what they've seen is the mass reduction in waste because they're paying people back for collecting these things. That's like a really simple way, but it's a way that like they're getting, the individual is getting praise and money for doing something that benefits the culture as a whole. So we Uh, used to have those. Yeah, I've not seen, I haven't seen We've, them. Like, we had this. them like 20 years ago and I don't know why they're not here. I mean, I remember doing it and the money mm-hmm. would come out. I think what it has to do with the fact is that there's no place to send all this plastic. That plastic is not infinitely recyclable. You can do it mm-hmm. twice and then that's it. You know, I've thought about this too, because you know, we have a place on an island and there's some poverty there. But if you could get like, you know, the bottle return there, what a mm-hmm. thing, you know, instead of people throwing it out their car window. But um, I don't know why I'll look it up, but I understand what you're saying there. If we could get that right, I think the first right thing that would be to go back to glass, which is infinitely. Absolutely. Or I think of like, in, um, I had a friend who traveled through Amsterdam two summers ago, and she was astounded by how many waste-free stores there are. And then you can get like discounts or benefits or almost vouchers for going to these places that have no bags and you bring your own jar and you do, and I know they have those in New York City and LA and some bigger cities around here, but even things like that where 
What I'm excited to see is how eco-friendly things are starting to be built into our culture. And yes, there is some greenwashing where people will just write eco on it or make it seem very eco-friendly. But then there's also real things like farmer's markets are one of the up and coming trends of 2024. I don't know if you knew that, but they're like, they're becoming cool again. So that's like where the cool people shop, which you're like, great, because that if only 10% more people shopped at farmer's markets, that would make a massive difference in many different ways. So I completely agree. Going back to glass, reducing plastic as a whole would be very beneficial. But on a what will change what people do is if they get recognized for the good they do instead of punished for the bad they do. Very good. Simple. Yeah. Simple. Uh, simple. So I, mm-hmm. I love that. I love simple. I love that we could take that concept and then extrapolate that and in, into the bigger picture, into mm-hmm. the bigger picture and how we can get people to help. Does that include the CEOs of the corporations? <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be amazing? I don't know who would run this or who would be in charge of it, but what if Instead of, okay, you do this shady stuff as a CEO and we'll give you an extra 500,000 at the end of the year. It was, you are so transparent and you've made so many decisions for the company and each individual person that we're going to give you a bonus for that. But if we find that you have done any kind of shady business or uh, taken deals with people who are not honest, then you will lose 500,000 of your... That would be amazing. But I think what right. happens is that they're controlled by the boards and the boards don't care. The boards just want no, their money. It's, yeah, um, there's a bottom line. So yeah. it's ideal. And I know that there are some organizations that are changing the structure, you know, having transparent salary policies, things like that, that are are shifting. Something my mom used to always say, and I still think this about every single person, no matter their level of power is that people will be who you expect them to be. Mm. So if I expect you to be kind of a jerk and you live in New York and you don't care about anyone and you're just like quiet and grouchy, and that's how I treat you every time I see you, I will help instill that as the reality that we are a part of. But if I believe you are somebody who lives in New York and you must be very interesting and probably have some great stories. You might be a little fast paced, but you probably know where the best bakery is. You will become that person. Amazing. act out as that person. That's so true. It's so true. I think about it all the time with like teenagers. If you believe a teenager is going to mess things up and be irresponsible and you talk to them like that and you treat them like that, you will engineer that reality for them. Versus if you say... I know you're responsible. And I know yeah. even if you make a mistake, you're going to be able to figure it out. Yes. They will become that person. And that is ultimately the subconscious. You are speaking oh to them deeper <laughs> than who they think they are. All right. I'll put that into practice right away. You, know, Maggie, it's time for us to wrap up. I hope you'll join us again. We didn't even get into, I wanted to get into hypnotherapy and talk about hypnosis and how that's a new tool, a new up and coming tool. That's something that's been around for a long time, but people Mm -hmm. are bringing it back again. So I hope you'll join us again. I would love to. I would love to. Wonderful. You know, before we go, so I have one last question for you, Mm -hmm. which is, I ask everyone, what brought you to be the change? Now, last season, I would ask people, why do you keep being the change? Because it's tough and blah, blah, blah. But now Mm -hmm. I'm asking people, what brought you here? I have a belief that it's trauma. Like there's always a a trauma experience that we can make that choice to go one direction or the other, but I don't, I could be wrong, but you tell me what brought you to this, to wanting to help people and to really change their lives for the better. What brought me here? I believe what brought me here is that of course it always goes back to when you're little When I was a little girl, I was so desperate to get to be who I was, to look how I looked, to act how I acted, to have the little funny things I had. We all have our own like funny little things. And no one intentionally taught me this, but I learned that like that wasn't going to work. That was not an option. And I needed to figure out how to be somebody else. And I worked really hard at it and I got pretty good at it. And 
then when I was older, I realized it is taking me so much energy to not be myself and it is hurting me. It is hurting the little girl inside of me because I'm reiterating that she's wrong and bad and needs to change. And so the reason that I'm the change is because I think there are other little girls and little boys and little people and little beings inside of other people that are desperate for safety and belonging and a sense that somebody likes them and wants them to be there. And my work helps me talk to them so that they can heal. And then these amazing adults can come out and change things about the world and politics and policy and make a beautiful restaurants and art and have these strong families. And I believe this means that the next generations, they won't have those as many little people inside of them that are hurting. And um, we can have politicians that aren't a bunch of little boys, that they're a bunch of grown-up people talking to each other, and it will be a lot more useful. Oh, Maggie, that's beautiful. And I want to say that I am so happy that you allowed who you are to come through, that you allowed your little girl to come forth because you are, she is, and you are extraordinary, absolutely Mm. extraordinary, and such a gift to all of us. So thank you. Thank you so much. Tell us, yeah, tell us where can people, if they want to see you, where can they find you? Yes. uh, Yeah, reach out to you. So um, my website is thenowisgolden.com. You can find out lots about me, what I do. And then on social media, I am on Instagram at thenowisgolden. I've been on quite the social media hiatus, but there's lots of great info on there that really represents what I do and who I am. It's just not totally up to date, but that will change. I fluctuate in and out of the social media world as needed. And I found that's just the best way for me to do it. But I'm always open for a DM or you can email me at Maggie at the now is golden. Even just with questions or wanting to have a conversation about something that's so enjoyable to me. So I like to think of it as my front porch where anyone can come and sit on the rocking chair and we can chat. Oh, I love that. So Maggie, M-A-G-G-I-E at thenowisgolden.com and the now being the present. So thenowisgolden.com. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. It's a joy. I can't wait to have you back. And I appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming on. Mm, Thank you. I loved it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.